Hi everyone, today's April 18th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Sam Pfaff, who is the Benjamin H. Lewis Chair and Howard Hughes Medical, Inves Medical Institute Investigator at the Salk Institute in La Jolla. His gene expression laboratory's focus is to identify the molecular determinants that specify motor circuitry of the spinal cord uh, and its peripheral targets. That's very specific. You actually do a lot more than that. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, Sam. Good afternoon, Selma. So around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Gary Galfo. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And we've got Gerard... Baudouin. Baudouin. Hello. Okay. I always want to say Baudouin. You could say Baudouin. Okay. Yeah, but it's Baud... It's Baud <laughs> that would be wrong, but you could yeah, say Yeah, I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> from a French standpoint, you would be correct, but from an like, American... Couple of and we won't, we won't talk about the third. Yeah, this is actually fine. Gerard Baudouin the third. That's right. Okay, uh, welcome. Haven't seen you in a while. And I'm your host, I'm Salma Karashi. So I just want to start by saying, um, so I, Charlie recently pointed out to me in a podcast, I think, that um, the spinal cord is one of the more dense areas of um, molecularly heterogeneous interneurons in the CNS. And so just based on that, I thought maybe it would first be cool to consider interneuron heterogeneity. So um, does genetic lineage heterogeneity always translate to functional heterogeneity is, is the question I always come to. So you, you're doing some very cool activity-based studies of interneurons. And um, I just thought maybe you could comment on how combining functional studies with assays of genetically defined lineages um, gets us somewhere in understanding you know, network integration. Locomotor networks. Right. Well, uh, I think the general theme of interneuron heterogeneity is extremely important for understanding the function of the nervous system. You are correct in identifying the spinal cord as one area where we're starting to appreciate the immense complexity and degree to which heterogeneous cell types are created, in particular um, interneurons, but it may not be limited to uh, interneurons. And in fact, uh, in saying the word interneuron, maybe we should even um, define that a little bit in, in terms of um, both populations of cells that project axons over, in this case, multiple spinal cord segments and, and those that um, project over shorter distances intersegmentally. Um, I would combine them both into the generic term of interneuron, but I just want to be sure that um, the listeners also appreciate the potential distinction there. So uh, genetic diversity is uh, vast. It's certainly um, beginning to be appreciated in the context of the spinal cord. Whether it is the site to which, or to whether the degree of heterogeneity is greater within the spinal cord compared to other areas of the central nervous system, I think is really quite debatable. And one of the reasons why it may seem that way today uh, is because uh, a lot of energy has put in, been put into identifying molecular distinctions that would uh, that allow us to subdivide things like the progenitor cells, as you mentioned, uh, as well as the postmitotic cells. My prediction, whether this turns out to be true or not, we'll have to see. But my prediction is that the diversity that exists in the spinal cord is equally complex everywhere else, and I think that's one of the great challenges, but also one of the, the exciting prospects for students in the future is to begin to 
dissect out this heterogeneity and to begin to understand neuronal function at a much more specific level. You uh, also alluded to um, the issue of the relationship between progenitor cells and post-mitotic neurons and the degree to which diversity exists. And this is ultimately going to become a question that um, is best answered by talking about specifics in the context of specific progenitor domains and um, post-mitotic neurons. So let, let's, let's take the spinal cord and the progenitor cells that produce motor neurons. So these have been given the name PMN for progenitor for motor neuron. One of the hallmark defining genetic marks that we use to find these cells are is the expression of OLIG2, a BHLH transcription factor. The characterization of these progenitor cells um, and lineage tracing from the, these uh, PMN uh, uh, precursor cells suggests that not only do they give rise to, in the spinal cord, all classes of somatic and visceral populations of motor neurons, but they also give rise later on in development to oligodendrocytes and are perhaps one of the primary sources of oligodendrocytes um, within, the, within the spinal cord. So there is an interesting switch that takes place during embryonic development that um, results in first the generation of the correct numbers of motor neurons um, along the spinal cord. Uh, motor neuron numbers are matched to muscle fiber numbers, and that means that at levels where the spinal cord uh, will be innervating limbs, there are going to be more motor neurons created than at non-limb levels. So there's, there are interesting features of regulating motor neuron development to keep the registration between the nervous system and the body plan. Uh, and, and then a switch occurs and, and uh, the cells begin to express oligodendrocytes. Some of the transcription factor changes that are associated with that switch um, have begun to be identified. Um, uh, the true underlying mechanisms that are that's controlling the, the clock and um, the exact numbers of these cell types um, I think needs further work. The degree to which uh, different motor neuron subtypes are generated is well appreciated, but the degree to which different oligodendrocyte subtypes, if there is such a thing, are, are generated uh, is, is not well studied at this point. Um, but I would raise the possibility that um, there, there may be a lot more complexity than, than we currently understand. So the progenitor cells for motor neurons are somewhat well understood, um, and they're certainly genetically tractable tools for beginning to trace them, especially in, in mice. Uh, if we take an interneuron population as a as a, an additional example now, so moving just dorsal to the PMN domain within the spinal cord, there are um, precursor cells for a population of so-called V2 interneurons. One of the things that those one of the defining factors that those precursor cells will express is uh, LHX3 as one example of a transcription factor. As those 
precursor cells for the V2 interneurons um, produce post-mitotic interneurons. There is a, uh, an additional cell fate decision that is made about whether to further, about how that population of interneurons is further subdivided into a so-called A class and a B class. And that turns out to be an important distinction at the level of the physiological properties of the interneurons because the A class will represent an excitatory population of interneurons, whereas the B class will represent an inhibitory uh, subdivision. The interneurons are not entirely different from one another, however, in that both the V2As and V2Bs will share um, the general location of their cell body, so they'll in general remain within the ventral portion of the spinal cord. They'll also in general project axons ipsilaterally. They'll both, it would appear, contact motor neurons and regulate motor activity. Uh, and they'll, uh, they both have the uh, ability to project axons over multiple spinal cord segments. So their common origin may carry over into some of their common cellular features, although their common progenitor or, uh, origin does not necessarily define their neurotransmitter properties. That's, that is something that is set up around the time that the progenitor, probably set up around the time that the progenitor cells are uh, becoming post-mitotic. So I have a quick question. So you made the analogy with... Uh um, the motor neuron progenitor domain, motor neurons are produced first, and then later on all of the dendrocytes. Is there a temporal, temporal regulation of uh, uh, this interneuron subtypes of V3A and V3B? And uh, um, are, they, are they related to uh, the circuitry that first develops in the embryo? Right. So, Gary, let me just um, correct one thing, which is the, the, the nomenclature here. So, um, I'm referring to V2A and V2B. Um, so, the, the uh, I guess the issue of um, uh, early embryonic uh, functions and what they're doing. So, we, we think that they're involved in the central pattern generator. Um, in fact, a variety of functional experiments to perturb their activity have been performed. We, um, we know a bit more about the V2A cell population, but um, there's uh, increasing work being done on the V2B population. Uh, the, the V2A population um, uh, helps to secure the regularity of the central pattern generator itself. Um, in uh, the V2B cells, um, some of that data I'm aware of, but it has not been published yet, so I think maybe I should um, leave it off the record this point, at this point. But I can say that uh, it represents an important cell class and that it's involved in controlling the CPG. Um, having just answered that, I think I missed part of your question, so you're going to have to remind me again. <laughs> Sorry for the... which, which cells are born first? So, the right. Or, or yeah, the thanks. Um, so the uh, impression that we have from looking at markers is that they're generated together and that the sequence of events uh, at this point looks like the progenitor cells produce post-mitotic neurons which are going to produ 
be either V2As or V2Bs, that they're, they would appear to be bipotential, and that through notch delta signaling at this post-mitotic stage, the distinct, distinction is sorted out. And that, um, that, that means that uh, they appear to be generated um, together and their development appears to be intimately linked. Um, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the idea of asymmetric cell divisions, and this is a case where maybe you could envision a case for an obligatory asymmetric cell division where you always have to make an A when you make a B. Um, the possibility for asymmetric cell divisions it certainly exists, and if you were to do lineage experiments, I think you would find many examples of precursors that had produced an A an interneuron and a B interneuron, V2A and a V2B, to be more specific. Um, but I think that, um, that it's not necessarily a, a strict requirement um, in the system, um, that it's an event that is regulated. So I, another interesting issue is in talking about these cell populations, so I'm beginning to wander here a little bit perhaps, but um, I'll, I'll bring this point up in case someone wants to follow up with it. Um, an interesting aspect of these uh, spinal cord interneurons is that they run as a continuous column uh, all the way uh, up the spinal cord. And yet they're probably, and, and so molecularly they look very similar based on some of the typical kinds of gene markers that we use to identify these cells. But they're probably uh, involved in regulating locomotor circuitry in very different ways at very different spinal cord levels. And so the degree to which they're fractionated isn't well understood. Um, for historical reasons, a lot of work on spinal cord circuitry has been done at spinal cord lumbar levels because we can activate the CPG with drugs most easily at the lumbar level. But I think that the functional um, contributions of some of these interneuron populations need to be examined in more detail at additional spinal cord levels to see how they integrate into the um, circuitry that's relevant to each spinal cord level. And then that raises the question of how these interneuron populations might be, if, if indeed they do have different functions at different levels, the degree to which the fractionation occurs. Is it through a hardwired molecular genetic process, so to speak? Are these cells... Um, in effect, aware of the fact that they should be dedicated for functions at cervical levels when they arise from a cervical progenitor cell, or is this something that may be driven through activity or more specific kinds of um, inputs, um, or are there perhaps even extrinsic cues in the environment surrounding the cervical neural tube that, that modifies the activity of these cells in a way that is different um, uh, from other spinal cord levels. And uh, I think these are all rich potential areas for further studies right now. Um, uh, I, I'm confident that there are going to be some very interesting differences uh, and the, the mechanisms and the degree to which those differences exist uh, should be really exciting. So with respect to the, the CPG, you know, from, I guess these are early early studies, it seems like a, a heterogeneous population, but yet they're controlling and they're getting innervations from, you know, um, essentially 
a somatic representation of the body. The, the motor neuron pool has uh, specific clusters going to specific muscle groups. The uh, the cortical map, uh, motor map has a you know um, specific uh, order to it. <clears throat> How is that order translated in the CPG or other uh, clusters of cells that are coordinating these activities? Right. So the the motor system has a very obvious topographic organization that allows us to relate the cell body position of the motor neuron to the relative position of the muscles in the periphery. Um, and as you correctly alluded to, there, the, the way I like to describe it is that the central nervous system's view of the body is really it's um, based on its um, access to motor neurons and their representation of the body plan itself. Uh, the degree to which the central pattern generator is structurally organized um, in, in simple animals is like lamprey um, is a little bit more obvious because the, of the limited number of cell types and some of the elegant work done by Sten Grillner and others. But in, in um, uh, animals like the mouse, the identification of um, a fixed number of cells in a fixed kind of wiring diagram uh, may ultimately be um, elusive and, and may ultimately be uh, very different um, from one animal to the next, but also from one location to the next. And what, what I'm really trying to say here, perhaps not very well, is that the CPG is probably a distributed network of neurons. And if you have enough of those neurons in your preparation, you may be able to generate a very robust rhythmic uh, motor output. And the distributed nature of the, of the cells makes it very hard to say, this is what the circuit looks like. Um, it's um, perhaps more relevant to talk about what are the components within the circuit um, and to leave open the possibility that um, there won't necessarily be a rigid um, circuit diagram. Having said that, the very robust nature of the CPG um, suggests that it has uh, features that ensure that it, that it operates with uh, great fidelity and, and great regulation. So undoubtedly there will be many, many, many common principles, um, but you know when we get to the detail of um, whose synapse onto what, um, in what kinds of numbers, um, I could easily envision scenarios where um, that's not necessarily a very um, fixed pattern in every um, situation. So the other question was, the, the, is there a single, I mean, so you alluded in your talk, maybe there's not a single CPG, that maybe there's a CPG for like the axial and a CPG for the, you know, the, the limb muscles or something like right. that. And so... Right. Is there, or maybe is there a master CPG that then controls the other types? Or is it that worked out? Uh, no, that is not worked out. So um, the degree to which there are multiple CPGs or uh, kind of a continuum of CPGs as you go down the spinal cord, mm -hmm. or the degree to which CPGs for one motor column may overlap or segregate from, from CPGs from another for, for another motor column are um, not well understood. 
which I think is an understatement, in fact. Um, you know, the this, this sort of state of the art right now is that neuron function in the spinal cord has been perturbed um, using a variety of very elegant genetic tools. And there's been a great deal of specificity that um, is possible using those genetic tools. Alterations in the CPG have been detected. Um, and so we're able to kind of break the circuit under a number of different circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the degree to sort of what the minimal CPG looks like um, is a question. And uh, something that I'll um, perhaps add here that I think is very important is that the the drugs that we use to evoke CPG activity in our preparation, so NMDA, dopamine, and serotonin, if you were to take isolated motor neurons, is enough to make the motor neuron itself a, a rhythmically active cell. So it, it has membrane properties that meet some of those um, demands, which raises the possibility that the motor neuron itself is actually one of the critical pacemakers um, in the system. And that all these other neurons are doing is ensuring that left is coordinated with right and that flexor is coordinated with extensor right. and helps to, to tweak some of the parameters so that there's a high degree of fidelity and uh, uh, the, um, maybe the, some of the timing aspects of the CPG um, are, are controlled. Don't wait. It seems like there's a, uh, a ton of baggage with... Uh, even the language of first of all you say the CPG right. <laughs> like it's a thing and this whole thing of a central pattern generator to identify it was gone out in a kind of an uh, in a in a way that was a pure thing so can you have a, a pattern generator without any external uh, inputs right so the question the original question is whether this rhythmic output is is you know are these reflex arcs or is this really central? And so you get the you get a shading off of the circuit. You got to cut this off. You got to cut that off until you have this thing left. And then the question is whether you're studying what's relevant for the circuit really too much. And if it goes down to individual motor neurons or pattern generators, then it's then it's all CPGs. Right. Right. All the way down. CPGs all the way down. Yes, the CPGs all the way down. So then how do you well, think, I mean, that's how you Well, you raise a number of issues. So um, perhaps we, we use CPG as a, a, you know, an oversimplified shorthand. Um, but I don't think this is necessarily uncommon. Um, this is, you know, we have to refer to it somehow. The, I think some of the model organisms have, have, been very helpful in guiding our thinking about how to um, begin to approach understanding CPGs. Uh, and I think we're really at the stage where we have to acknowledge that um, they're probably more complicated and somehow woven together with other neural circuitry and much more complicated ways in the mouse than in other um, simple uh, organisms or animals. So, you know, these are, uh, you know, on the one hand, th these are really interesting days because um, there's now hope of, of gaining a little bit of traction with this problem. Um, on the other hand, I 
think we all need to be fully aware of some of the caveats in referring to things like um, the CPG and um, you know the issue of trying to understand what is the minimal aspect of the CPG will ultimately be very important. Uh, you also alluded to something that I think is extremely important in the context of locomotion in general, which is the relay of sensory information uh, back into the system. So there's there are all kinds of interesting forms of that. Um, uh, there are very interesting um, uh, requirements for the awareness of proprioception and how that... Uh, um, modulate CPG uh, activity. There are some very interesting examples of patients who have, for the most part, lost most of their proprioception, and these are sometimes referred to as patients who have lost their bodies um, because they, and if you do a YouTube search, you'll probably find some examples of that. Um, amazingly, these individuals can uh, move around and uh, survive, but they have a, a difficult time, obviously, kind of having a, an awareness of where their various limbs are um, at, at different times, unless they actually can look at them and, and see them. <laughs> in the CPG assays that we use in the laboratory, they're an isolated preparation of the spinal cord, and so we've cut the dorsal roots and eliminated the sensory feedback into the system, which um, leads us to think that in order to activate the central pattern generator, it's not an, an absolute requirement that you, in, in a very regulated way, it's not an absolute requirement that you, that you have uh, sensory inputs. Uh, having said that, one of the ways to activate the CPG is, is by stimulating uh, sensory pathways. And one of the great uh, hopes for treating spinal cord injury is that uh, CPGs, we'll say plural now, um, within the spinal cord below the injury site might be activated. And one of the ways that activation is um, evoked frequently is by um, initiating stepping movements, which provide a sensory feedback uh, into the system um, to begin to activate the CPG. So clearly the CPG is uh, um, modified by sensory input. Um, can be activated by sensory input. The degree to which it's actually regulated by sensory input may be a little bit up for debate. Um, uh, but uh, sensory feedback is clearly a very important aspect of um, properly regulating locomotion. There's another component of feedback, which is uh, many circuits are sending a so-called carbon copy of their information um, back to the cerebellum. So some of the information from proprioception is being relayed into a center called Clark's Column, which is then relaying uh, inputs back to the cerebellum. Some of the um, cortical projections from motor cortex um, into the spinal cord are relaying onto projections that enter into the um, cerebellum. And so um, in many cases, there are pieces of information which are directing motor actions and simultaneously leading to activation in the cerebellum. And presumably, there's a comparison that's constantly going on in the cerebellum between uh, sort of the intended action and the actual action, and the adjustments are, are 
being made in in uh, some sort of relevant time frame uh, to be useful. Uh, so, um, you know, I, our maybe a critical part of our consciousness is actually uh, in self awareness, or actually all of these sensory systems as they feed into the motor system to um, constantly create this sort of body awareness um, so that we can perform our motor functions with great accuracy. I would make the argument that humans have one of the most sophisticated motor systems of any species from the standpoint of our independent finger movements and the control over our over speech. And that many of the circuits that, that control and coordinate movements um, as pattern groups of muscle activation also look like they can be, you can use some of that same way of thinking about how circuitry may be organized for speech and phenomes, phenomes um, as units of speech that are being combined um, to sort of simplify the task of, of uh, um, speech regulation. So uh, as, a, as a species, I think we're extraordinarily good at our motor control. We may not run the fastest or jump the highest, um, but we certainly have very um, fine muscle control. So I have a question. You, you had mentioned that uh, it took about 400 million years to, to generate the motor circuitry involved from... Uh, amphibians to, or fish amphibians to mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> terrestrial animals and in contrast to that it took two million years to generate um, motor speech do you think it took a relatively short amount of time because those centers essentially hijacked existing systems that worked that's right yeah so the, the frightening thing is that our ability I think the frightening thing is that our our a unique ability to communicate through speech. So, and maybe some people would argue with that, you know, the degree to which we're unique. Now that I'm saying this, um, I'm realizing maybe I'm overstepping things a little bit here, but our unique abilities to communicate um, orally um, exist in, that these abilities exist in many different species and um, we just have a, a very elaborate form of it with, with speech. But I think that it is quite likely that much of the musculature and much of the um, neural control of that musculature must have already been in place in some of the transitional spe- species leading up to um, Homo sapiens that could speak uh, so that the number of steps and requirements and the, the possible bottlenecks um, were, were limited. And I, I just think that intuitively it's quite fascinating that the bottlenecks for creating a limb were apparently so much more challenging than those for um, developing speech. Hmm. You know, presumably, you know, speech is not only the control over the musculature to generate the sounds, but it probably also was accompanied with great improvements in hearing and in processing and storing information in in new kinds of ways. So there may have been some really interesting co-evolution going on 
in, in terms of other brain structures as well as those for the motor systems. Well, note to previous listeners of the podcast, Eric Jarvis is talking about one of the main one of the main things is in giving speech in language maybe connecting the auditory and the motor thing. So mm-hmm. if you have a very reasonably precise auditory system, you can hear lots of species can hear and understand us speak. And we can do lots of complicated things and chewing and all this other kinds of stuff. And in the hard part, maybe connecting and integrating these two functional systems. And then once you get that connection there, it just it takes off. Right. It's, it's not a new movement per se, or there are new movements, but the main thing you can get by with is this quite a dexterous thing of your tongue. Uh, and you have very sophisticated auditory processing capabilities. Is the hard thing is put to put it together, to use it, and to use it for yeah. kinds of things. As scientists, we may actually stumble into some uh, interesting gray zones for ethics because uh, certain types of xenografting experiments that in principle could be done using um, human precursor cells for neurons, starting maybe with human embryonic stem cells, uh, if they were engrafted into a fairly well-advanced uh, primate, um, might be able to integrate and um, add some of the functions that are necessary for um, speech and communication. And, you know, we currently tolerate a certain degree of xenotype experiments. Some really interesting, important things have been done, but we have to begin to ask ourselves how far will we let this go? And is speech too much? So, as a, develop- as a developmental biologist, you would as a Hawks biologist, that's, uh, that, that patterns, uh, you know, uh, segments along the AP axis, you know, grafting uh, a neuron into the central nervous system, you would imagine that's not going to work because you have to have a coordinated pattern with that neuron and, you know, the, the peripheral structures, right? Uh, that is right. Um, so it de- depends on the degree to which... Um, the system has to be sort of reassembled. And I would imagine that the earlier you put in precursor cells uh, into the nervous system, the greater potential that will exist for um, development and integration of the cells into, into the relevant circuitries. Uh, but if, there's a, if there is a requirement to have certain muscle groups and those aren't replaced or created or there's a requirement to have um, certain connections between motor neurons and muscle groups, um, you could imagine how it could easily fail as well. Um, I think what, what I'm struggling with is, is how much are you willing to try in the interest of understanding how some of these functions arose um, and you know where do you where do you have to begin to become concerned about drawing that that line I would be happy to make a talking bear <laughs> a talking bear would be worth <laughs> right right and we probably have fewer forest fires <laughs> so somewhere in language there's I mean uh, from what Todd was saying, it almost uh, this almost doesn't enter into it. But somewhere in language, there has to be uh, encoding of meaning into symbols and that sort of thing. I mean, what's the? There's plenty of evidence of 
animals that can make noises and communicate and animals that can understand really complicated sounds. But what, are, are you, what do you think about the, like, the use of, of symbols in, that, in those kinds of situations? And I, and I wonder if, like, uh, well, I guess that's maybe what you meant when you say connecting. Uh, no, I'm not necessarily. The, I, I, I mean, that's a huge debate about what, you know, you're, you're talking about the evolution of speech, or you're talking about the evolution of language. Does the does a great uh, flexible speech apparatus then give you the lifting point to be able to to make symbols late, later? Are you because you can do such such amazing things with your communication is so easy that then you speed up the communication, make more and more sophisticated things that now language evolves from that. Or is it because we have such great uh, uh, ability to abstract what's going on and tell stories to ourselves that then there's this all this impression pressure to, to communicate like to somebody that. else if we could make a talking right. bear would he argue about the difference between the subjective and the objective <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's uh, that would be a good yeah. that would well, you be a good experiment what, what the listeners can't appreciate <laughs> is that sitting around the table here as we speak uh, many of us use lots of hand gestures right. and it's actually very difficult to dissociate the, the hand gestures and actually we I think we add a lot to our speech through those hand gestures as well. And uh, it, it turns out to be a really important part of our mechanism for uh, communication and um, the way that we imply certain pauses or place emphasis on certain things um, through the way that we that we single with, uh, signal with our gesture. So communication is definitely um, intimately linked with how we move in our motor system. Um, as someone who's worked on the spinal cord for quite a long time now, it's only been relatively recently that I've begun to kind of appreciate um, the motor system for more than just propelling us across the room by walking um, and uh, some of the other very important things that it does um, that really help to make us or define us as somewhat unique as a, as a species. I don't know if anyone knows, but I'm, I would be curious to know if other animals that do communicate also incorporate um, gestures into that type of communication. Um, I have this image of primates, you know, waving their arms um, frantically when they're very upset and, and sort of making squealing sounds, um, and that somehow those things might be a you know, a primitive form of language. But, you know, t the degree to which this is always correlated, I have no idea. Yeah, birds do a lot of sort of fancy movement while they're singing. Yeah, a lot of them uh, do a dance because it's a court, often it's part of a whole courtship display mm -hmm. kind of thing or a territorial defense kind of display. So it's all wrapped up with things. Right. Uh, it's interesting in the, in the distinction between meaning and symbols and arbitrary symbols. A lot of the... Uh, you know, a lot of the hand signals and other kinds of things aren't really necessary for that, but they give a lot of the tone and the emotional tone and other kinds of things that aren't in the specifics of language, that you have this whole, you're communicating a lot more than what you're saying. Right. Right? Right. And so a lot of that motor stuff is probably quite general in terms of communicating uh, emotional state, and lots of animals do that uh, very much so. A lot basically any social animal that has kind of complicated social interactions has pretty sophisticated sets of 
tones of tones of voice, and even if you can't say any, you know, even if you don't have language or you're not imitative, you can understand a lot about the 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 motion behind various vocalizations. You know. Cats and their tails, yeah, dogs and their ears, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> mm. Wow, we went. I don't know how we got from spinal cord to language, but that was very excellent. Thank you for being with us. It's been a lot of fun. I have one more. Oh, you have one more. And, and it, may just, it may take a couple minutes. So you have, uh, is there an um, analogous CPG uh, that's correlated with a corticospinal tract? So, I mean, this is going up to uh, Charlie's territory, the striatum or the substantia nigra. Are, are these things uh, perhaps regulating... You know, corticospinal input, would that be an analogous territory? So what would be the analogous CPG uh, in the forebrain? Uh, what, what, what is it? Uh, so, what so want to explain? So in the spinal cord, there's a, a CPG that's related to the motor neurons uh-huh. that's coordinating activity. So there's got to be some kind of coordinating center for the corticospinal um, uh, tract going to the spinal cord. So are, is there an, an analogous center in the forebrain that may be regulating the output of the corticospinal. Sure. The whole forebrain is busy regulating the corticospinal. I mean, you could argue that the, the, the whole brain is... A, the I don't know that there's anything quite analogous to the rhythmicity that's seen okay. in the context of, of respiratory CPGs or spinal cord CPGs. However, there are um, theta waves and other things um, spreading amongst these neurons. And so um, maybe that's a kind of common binding feature um, that is linking up these neurons. Whether I don't know that it's necessarily a very good analogy, however, with a with a classic kind of central pattern generator. The whole basal ganglia works as a central pattern generator from an electrophysiological point of view. So if you're just trying to describe the electrical activity, it's all coupled oscillators. So, but a central pattern generator is more than just a set of coupled oscillators. It's a set of oscillators that are driving a movement. But I guess if you'd be willing to extend the idea of central pattern generator to anything, say something that was driving your appreciation of the rhythm in in music, or something that was looking for other kinds of rhythmicity in the in your internal state, or or something like that, then then I think uh, certainly basal ganglia would be a good place to look because every every cell there is it's unlike the cerebral cortex where apparently you need an input to make the cells fire. None of those cells require input to fire, and they're firing all the time, even in the absence of input. So they are coupled systems of coupled oscillators. Hmm. Thanks for being with us, Sam Pfaff. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.